Okay, well, we are in our very last message in the book of Galatians. And before we jump into it, I want us to think about the difference between action and motivation. There's an important difference between why we do something and what we do. I think for most of us, you might beg to differ, but for most of us, it's pretty easy to think about what we have done in any given situation, right? We can pretty much think back to our day uh, prior and, and think through all the different things I went or, or, or that, that I did throughout the course of the day. You can recall the details. You can recall the different things that you have done. You can remember the different tasks that you accomplished. That's not very difficult. What is difficult is discerning why we did something. Why did I say what I said? Why did I go there? Why did I make that comment? When we start to think about the why, things get a little more difficult. It takes more work. It takes more pondering. It takes more honesty. For example, think of, think, think of something as simple as going to the gym. That can be motivated by a whole variety of reasons. Maybe you, you just want to stay in shape, right? You're, you're sticking with your, your uh, New Year's resolution still. That's a great thing, and uh, you've been sticking with it for a long time at this point. Keep going, right? Maybe you go to the gym because it's where you play pickup basketball. Maybe you go to the gym for vain reasons, right? You want the abs, and that's the reason you go to the gym. Maybe you go to the gym because there's a sense of community there. You want to see others. You want to have conversations with others. Maybe you want to be seen. I would even guess that for many of us, it's a combination of all of the above. Simply put, all I'm saying is that discerning the why question is a lot more complex and difficult than deciphering the what question. You can do things that look questionable on the outside for good reason. Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. And yet at the same time, you can do things that look honorable for questionable reasons. Hence, the Pharisees. Motives are difficult to navigate. And when we come to our final verses here, what we see is that Paul is now focusing specifically on the idea of motive. So first what we see here is he focuses on the motive driving the false teachers to teach the things they teach and do the things they do. And then he takes a step back and he gives us insight as to why he is so adamant to, pr pr uh, uh, to protect the gospel, to defend the message of Christ. So as we wrap up our message this morning, um, I want to begin just by reading our passage. So we're again in Galatians 6, and we're in verse 11. We'll go through the end of the chapter. Here's what Paul says. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. 
For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my own body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So we've reached the end of the letter. As we come to our passage, what we have here is a final summation of all the themes we've seen in the book of Galatians, kind of boiled down to a a few verses. In a sense, this is like the concluding paragraph of one of those uh, five-paragraph argumentation essays you had to write in high school. You had the intro, tell your audience what you're about to say. You have your body, your three paragraphs in the middle, where you tell your audience what you are saying, and then you have your conclusion. Summarize what you just said. That's kind of what's going on here. But don't worry, this isn't going to be very repetitive in comparison with what we've seen in the rest of the book. To be honest, I think Paul would have probably got docked if he was in an English class like in his freshman year of high school because in this conclusion, he actually introduces new material. And if you've ever been in one of those freshman classes in high school, you know the one thing you don't do in your conclusion is introduce new material. So there is some new material for us to see here. First off, what we see is that Paul is writing uh, this conclusion with his own hand. So typically, a, a first century author would have a scribe write the majority of the letter, and then they might sign off on it at the very end. Well, Paul takes the liberty to write an entire paragraph and tack it on to the end. It's not just a signature. It's like an entire summation of everything he wants them to know. And notice, he uses very large font, essentially just to make the point. Pay attention to what I am saying. Pay attention to what I am about to tell you. He wants to emphasize his message. He wants to catch their attention. So what does he want to catch their attention with? Look at verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Notice again what Paul is getting at here. He's turning his attention directly at the motive driving these false teachers to teach what they are teaching and do what they are doing. They want to make a good showing in the flesh. The truth here is that these false teachers are not looking out for the good of the church. They're not interested in the good of God's people. They're interested in their own good. They're looking out for themselves. They say the things they say. They act the way they act because they are motivated by self-interest. And let me just say that this is true about every false teacher. Their motives are always impure. Now, I get it. In the 21st century, we are told over and over again, don't assume someone's motive. Don't jump to conclusions about someone's motives. 
And by and large, I think that's actually a really good thing. We probably shouldn't just be assuming the worst of everyone's motives all the time. That's not going to be a good way to be a human being. It's not going to be a good way to make friends or keep them. And yet, I think we would all agree that there are exceptions. There are times when we ought to jump to conclusions regarding someone's motive. So, for example, if you are committing genocide, I think we can all agree that it is safe to assume you do not have the best of motives. You're committing genocide. If you're the leader of a terrorist organization, you can spare me that that individual has good motive, right? I don't really want to hear that. The same thing is true when we consider the motives driving false teachers. We cannot assume the best of their motives. If you are manipulating God's word, I'm not going to give your motives the benefit of the doubt because you are manipulating the very words of God. The false teacher is self-seeking. Their motives are corrupt. There is something radically off in his or her own heart. Otherwise, they would not be manipulating God's word. Now, let me clarify something really quick because I think we can often miss this. We cannot mistake sincerity with motive. Sincerity and motive are not the same thing. Someone can teach false doctrine with sincerity, but that does not mean that their motive is right. Here's why. Sincerity simply means that you believe the things you claim to believe. Motive speaks to why you do something or why you believe something. Every false teacher, regardless of how sincere he or she may be, is self-seeking at a motive level. So what are the self-seeking motives of these false teachers? Let's keep reading in verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. There's the motive. Interesting, interestingly, the first motivation that Paul speaks to here is the fact that these individuals are motivated by fear, self-preservation. They have a, a deep-seated fear of man. They don't want to be persecuted. And the reason I say this is interesting is because this is the first time this motivation is brought up in the entire letter. Like, he hasn't said anything about this before, and yet here he's offering us this new insight into why these false teachers are teaching the way they're teaching. Again, the freshman English teacher wouldn't be too excited about this, but, you know, regardless of what the English teacher says, we need to deal with it. Apparently, there was a major issue in the first century with this very thing. Missionaries going out to preach the gospel would run into the, the issue that circumcision had proven to be a major stumbling block. There were likely Jewish opponents who were perturbed that someone would preach the gospel without necessitating the law and circumcision. And they were so, so perturbed about this that they were willing to persecute people over this very issue. So in light of that, these teachers that Paul is speaking against, they're motivated by self-protection. 
They don't want to face persecution. So instead, what they do is they strive to appease. They want to make sure they cover all of their bases. I need to make sure no one is offended by the message I am preaching. I want to avoid persecution. And be assured that the unadulterated preaching of God's word will come with persecution. Apparently, these individuals, they either don't know what Jesus said in John 15, or they don't care. John 15, verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. By adulterating the word of God in order to avoid persecution, these individuals have crept to an immense low. Think about it. They're denying participation with the suffering of our Savior, and the way they're denying it is by manipulating his word. May it never be that we leave Christ to suffer on the cross alone. And may it never be that the means by which we go about doing that is by twisting his own words. The God of creation has suffered for rebellious individuals like us. Who are we? How could we be so proud not to suffer for him? But let's be honest. I think every one of us in this room, we have all been faced with the temptation to abandon Christ or to mute the message of the gospel when persecution arises. Last week we heard from our brother Jacob who's been serving in Chad and he told some pretty moving messages, uh, stories about some of these different individuals. That's, that's probably an understatement. Um, we heard about Mubarak and Bashira. And both of these Chadian brothers, they have been facing persecution so intense that we, we can't really even imagine going through what these brothers have gone through. They, they are on the run literally for their own lives, and the people they're running for are their own family members, right? The amount of intense scrutiny that sort of situation would cause someone's soul is it's unfathomable because not only are you, you bearing the weight of a broken relationship with someone as close as a family member, but you are fleeing for your very own life. Imagine the thoughts creeping into the minds of those men. Don't you think it would just be easier to deny Christ or to alter the message of the gospel? Abandon Jesus? Follow the example of these false teachers in the face of persecution? You know, in our context, I think it's fair to say that we don't face the type of persecution that our brother Mubarak is facing. Right? I think we all know that. Yet, I don't want to pretend that in our current situation we face no persecution. Just because there are Christians around the globe dying for the sake of the gospel does not mean that we are not facing our own form of persecution. I would imagine that just about every single one of us in this room at some point or another have felt the pressure to shut our mouths in the face of hostility. Stop talking about scripture. Just stop it with the gospel conversations. We know the feeling. Maybe it's losing a relationship. Social pressures are real. You might not fear your life, but you fear losing a relationship. And I, I think there's a sense in which that's legitimate. That's a legitimate fear. Thanksgiving is coming upon us. And, and some of you in this room probably have family members 
that are not okay with you even referencing Christianity, let alone clearly articulating the gospel of Christ. So how do you respond? How do you respond when you feel that pressure to avoid any conversation that brings up Christ? Maybe for you, your temptation is to avoid persecution while you are at work. You have a boss, or maybe you have a business partner radically opposed to Christianity, and so you fear losing your position over the gospel. Again, you're not fearing for your life, but you might be fearing for your livelihood. I think that's significant. You know, I work with college students, as I mentioned earlier, and and you can imagine, many of you have been there, on the college campus, it is not simple, it's not easy to be an outspoken Christian. If you want to be clear and articulate the gospel, then you are going to be labeled a bigot, you're going to be ostracized, you're going to be shamed. You're not dying for Christ, and yet you're losing social standing, you're losing friends, you're losing relationships with family members. You know, that's the sort of situation we are in. And so as we look to the examples of our brothers like Mubarak and and Bishara, I don't think it's appropriate for us to just look at them and feel shame because we don't necessarily suffer in the way that they suffer. But instead, what we ought to do is look at their examples and find encouragement. Look at the example of someone suffering well. And say, that's my brother in Christ. I have the same strength of Christ dwelling within me. I, I can resist the temptations of my age. I, I can resist the persecution going on around me or the temptation to resist that persecution through muting the gospel. Let's find a willingness within our hearts granted to us by the Spirit to suffer with Christ because that is what he has called us to do. Verse 13 As we move on, we gain further insight to the motive behind these false teachers. Verse 13, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire, notice the motive there, they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Again, further proof that they are self-oriented. They seek to make converts so that they might boast. And so with every circumcision, they add to their numbers. They add to their their proof that their ministry is fruitful. It's successful. They're driven by this desire to attain a following. They want to boast in their crowds. They want to fill the seats within their church services in order that they might be thought much of. Their desire is to boast in numbers. If you were present at the Initiate Conference that we had this year, Phil spoke about the fact that this is still a temptation in our culture today. We all have this temptation. Every church leader has this temptation to do ministry that is big, fast, famous. Right? In order for ministry to be deemed as successful, We need to start movements, and we need to do this rapidly, and everyone needs to take notice of what we are doing. 
Your events must be massive. They must be efficient. They must be Instagrammable. That's what the culture tells us. And not only that, the culture tells us that if we do not achieve those sorts of things, then our ministry should be labeled as a failure. And yet when we look at the biblical model of ministry, what we see is that God calls us to do little things faithfully over the long haul, even when those things are not noticed. Even when they are unseen. God does not demand that our ministry be big, fast, and famous. God does not decree that our churches initiate movements. God is not calling us to do massive things for him. Instead, he is calling us to be faithful in everything. That's the calling of the gospel, faithfulness. And I would be wrong to not point out that sometimes God does decide to use our small, faithful acts of ministry in order to accomplish something large and impressive for the sake of his kingdom. But we cannot miss the fact that massive things happen in God's kingdom at God's initiative. If revival is going to take place, it is going to happen not because we manufacture it. Revival is going to be able to happen not because of us, but in spite of us. Our duty and our concern is faithfulness. So that's what we devote ourselves to. And if God wants to enable success to take place, let him do so. But he will do so by his own decree. Our duty is faithfulness, and that is such a relief. It's not our responsibility to spurn off massive movements, to manipulate revival. God is the one who acts. And so let's trust in him, let's depend on his spirit, and let's seek to live out our lives with faithfulness. You see, the false teachers, they went astray when they prioritized their following over their faithfulness. Because they desired influence rather than obedience, it led them straight into heresy. May it never be that we follow their example. Okay. That's enough looking at the uh, poisonous motives behind these false teachers. Let's now look at Paul's motive for ministry. And let's try to get a positive example before our eyes. Look at verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul's motivation is one of boasting. He too wants to use his ministry in order to boast. So in that way, he is, he's like his opponents. But notice the fundamental difference between him and his adversaries. Paul's motivation is to boast with the end of lifting up the cross of Christ, not himself. He does not want to boast in his ministry in order to make much of his own accomplishments. He speaks to make much of God's accomplishments through the cross. In fact, when we really think about it, the cross of Christ is actually a lesson that we have nothing to boast about in and of ourselves. From a worldly perspective, 
It is actually paradoxical to boast in the cross. Because the cross implies your own insufficiencies. The cross is proof that you and I are needy beyond our, even, beyond our realization. The, the cross is proof that our state was so detrimental that the Son of God had to come and die for us in order to heal our own weakness. From a worldly perspective, why would you boast in that? You see, to boast in the cross is to exclaim that my sin resulted in the Creator's death. It is a proclamation. Look what God has done for me, even though I did not deserve it. Boasting in the cross proves to be antithetical to the motives of these false teachers. Instead of boasting to make much of ourselves, we boast to make much of what God has done in our place. You know, a true understanding of salvation entails a healthy understanding of our own weaknesses and our own neediness. If you do not understand your own neediness, if you do not understand your own weakness, I dare to say you may not be a true Christian. By boasting in the cross, you are doing just that. You are recognizing your own weaknesses. You are recognizing your own neediness. You remind yourself that apart from the grace of God, apart from the intervention of Christ, I am utterly hopeless. The only thing I deserve is condemnation, apart from the intervention of God. And so we can say with joy, thanks be to God that he has sent Christ to die in our place, to grant us his perfection that we could not attain on our own. Now as we move into the second half of this verse, Paul says that he has been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to him. Here's what he's getting at. Unlike these false teachers who prioritize the things of this world, boasting in their accomplishments, boasting in their success, Paul has been crucified to the ways of this world. So to be crucified to the ways of this world implies that you have died to the priorities of this age. We have been crucified with Christ. We no longer boast in our own accomplishments. We do not live for a following. We have died to that mentality. That's what it means to be uh, crucified to this world. But not only that, to be crucified to this world and to have the world crucified to you is also a proclamation that you associate with Christ's suffering. Unlike the false teachers, unwilling to suffer with Christ, Paul makes the proclamation, I have been crucified to this world. And notice the language, crucifixion. He has suffered for the sake of the gospel. We cannot miss the reality of what Jesus said. A servant is not greater than his master. This does not mean that suffering for the gospel is easy. And yet, when we really think about what the gospel accomplishes, we will recognize that suffering for the gospel is worth it. Paul is willing to say... I have been crucified to this world and the world has been crucified to me. He's willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel because he understands what the gospel accomplishes. 
He understands the message that he proclaims is revolutionary. What Jesus has done is far greater than anything I could do or anything Paul could ever do. His accomplishments, Christ's accomplishments, are worthy to be proclaimed. They are worthy to suffer over. So what does the cross accomplish? Verse 15, it has initiated the new creation. It has flipped the curse on its head. That's a message worth proclaiming, even if it means suffering for it. Look at verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Last weekend, I got to visit Spokane, uh, Spokane, Washington. I went to college there. I lived there for five years, and uh, I haven't been back for five years. So it was a great time to be able to visit a lot of friends, to visit with uh, the church that I was in for, for a while there. And, um, you know, I, I didn't always live in Washington, though. I actually grew up in South Florida. And uh, I lived in Florida for 21 years. And as you could probably imagine, Washington and Florida are very different. They are not the same. (laughs) There are many reasons for this, but one reason is the fact that Washington has seasons. (laughs) You know, in Florida, practically speaking, there are no seasons, at least in South Florida, where I grew up. The amount of change from fall to winter and winter to spring is minimal at best. Moving to Washington, though, I I got to experience seasons for the first time. Uh, Fall is different than winter, and winter is different than spring. See, I wasn't in western Washington where it rains all the time. I was in eastern Washington where there's actually legitimate seasons, like it's sunny, and then there's leaves that change, and then it snows. Uh, There's variety. It's not just rain. Um, Anyways, (laughs) here's the deal. These false teachers in, in Galatia, essentially, they're looking at this transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, life before Christ, life after Christ, like a Floridian who looks at the changing of the seasons. They're going, yeah, you know, sure, Jesus has come, but by and large, things are the same. Still have circumcision, still have uncircumcision, still have the law, still need to keep it, still need to observe the Sabbath days. All in all, it's the same. Yet Paul is saying that after Christ, things are different for the body of believers. Circumcision and uncircumcision do not count for anything now. The law has been transformed. There has been a change that has occurred. The seasons have shifted. They have changed. No longer are the people of God marked by their participation in circumcision. Instead, the church is marked by participation in the new covenant. This is central to the message of Jesus. He came to initiate the new creation. This is part of the larger narrative of Scripture. As we look at the big picture of the Bible, what we see is that in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree, they introduced corruption and sin into the entire created order. And it did not merely affect affect humanity. It affected everything. And so when Jesus came, he came to spark a new creation. And what that literally means is that he is changing a people 
and he is changing the world holistically. In the cross, this new creation has begun, and it's taking place in the hearts and lives of every single individual who places faith in Christ. In a real sense, the new creation is here. God has made a new people for himself. That's what's happening right now. A people, a new people, a new creation people are being made for the eventual new creation that God will initiate. New world, new heavens, new earth. We right now are being transformed into the image of Christ. We are being transformed into the individuals that we were created to be. New creation is taking place, and it's taking place in the hearts and lives of every church member. So when Paul says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matter, but only a new creation, what he means is that in Jesus, there is a new marker that signifies the people of God. Whereas circumcision and uncircumcision delineated between the people of God prior to Jesus, now new creation is the marker. Notice this distinction. Under the old way, the distinction was physical. Now there is a spiritual marking that deciphers between these two types of people. Which brings us back to Galatians 5, what we saw a few weeks ago. The fruit of the Spirit is proof that you are participating in the new creation. The fruit of the Spirit is is proof that God's creative work is, is sparking new life within you. Regeneration is taking place. Rebirth. Transformation is happening. This speaks to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A famous verse. Many of us have that memorized. And yet I would point out that we often oversimplify its meaning. Some of these verses that we're so familiar with, we either misunderstand or we oversimplify This isn't merely speaking to individuals being transformed into a new creation. That's a half-truth. What's actually going on here is that these individuals are beginning to participate in a cosmic new creation. It's not just about the individuals. It's about God reorchestrating everything, restructuring his entire creation. These passages are actually focusing on the fact that in the gospel, you are a member of God's new creation. This is bigger than you as a person. This is about you entering into God's new universal reality. Brothers and sisters, this is why reverting to circumcision and uncircumcision is so detrimental for the people of God. This message is why Paul is willing to suffer This this new creation message is the motive we ought to have when we think about its, its implications. This gives us motive to suffer for Christ. This gives us motive to proclaim the gospel indiscriminately to a watching world. As we look at this issue in the Galatian church, we need to recognize our obedience, our observance of the law, our merits, They cannot transform us into a new creation people. That's a supernatural act that must happen through God alone, through his spirit being at work within our hearts. And that's something God can do. Only God can do. He must work. He must enable this to take place in our lives. 
Okay. With all of this said, this leads to the closing of our letter. As we look at verse 16, we're entering into the closing remarks. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Paul is now turning the corner. He's in the final stretch of his letter, and he's offering a blessing to his reader. But look at who receives this blessing. Who receives the blessing? Who is the people who receive the blessings of Israel? Whoever walk by this rule. By following this, this way that Paul is laying out for us, we get to attain access to God's favor. By trusting in Christ, we get to attain the promises of God's new creation. Let me just point out, these verses are meant to be provocative for this church. Here's why. We can attain the blessings God intended to bestow on Israel, not by reverting to the ways of Israel and the law, but by trusting in Christ. Essentially, those who are seeking to access the blessings of Israel by becoming Jews outwardly are cut off from the people of God. That's Paul's point here. You cannot be transformed outwardly outwardly in order to become a person uh, who is part of God's people. You must be transformed inwardly. So those who are trying to establish their place among God's people by the physical act of circumcision, they're actually cut off. Which is why Paul has been so adamant and so serious throughout this entire letter. Look in verse 17. He gives one last one last statement regarding the seriousness of what he thinks about these false teachers. He says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Let no one cause me trouble. In other words, give no hearing to the false teachers. Do not give them a platform. Do not give them a pulpit in your church. They have abandoned the truth of the gospel. They are self-seeking. All they are seeking is their own flesh's preservation. What they want is their own glorification. Paul, on the other hand, he bears the marks of Jesus on his own body. And that speaks to his success. It's not, his mem- not the, the number of members he has following him. It's not the amount of circumcisions he has, he has brought about. No. His mark of sincerity are the marks on his own body, the marks of Jesus. What he means is that he has suffered for the gospel. He has proven his devotion to the truth by the bruises and the scars on his flesh. In the ancient world, slaves would be marked by a piercing or a tattoo in order to demonstrate that they were a member they, uh, of a master, like they had a master, essentially. Paul is using the same language here. But he's saying, my markings are not piercings or tattoos. My markings to prove that I am a slave of Christ are my scars. They prove his sincerity. They prove the sincerity of his message. So he wants the Galatians, take account of my scars. Take account of my message. Now as we close, I want to point out that at the very end of this letter, we need to recognize that this is so important. How is Paul going to close a letter that has proved to be pretty scathing? 
This has been an intense letter. How is he going to close this to this church? What's, what's he going to say? Verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. I think this one verse is worth a whole sermon, but I have two minutes. So, I'm going to say two minutes worth of things. Have you ever been in a situation uh, where you had a brother or sister in Christ and you notice this individual was wandering and you think to yourself, I know that I am probably the one who ought to call this person to repentance, but that thought leaves you overwhelmed. You're left wondering, is this person actually going to listen to me? Is this person actually going to heed my call to repentance? That's the position Paul was in. Maybe the person you know has walked into blatant rebellion. And you know that you have the responsibility to plea, call them to obedience. I think if you've ever been in one of those situations, you probably know what it feels like to feel hopeless and helpless. You sense there's nothing you can do or say that will change the heart of this individual who's walking into sin. And I think that if we look at verse 18 and we pay attention to what Paul is saying, we can actually find hope. Notice what he says here. He refers to the Galatians as brothers. May the grace of God be with your spirit. Brothers. This is hope. The genuine Christian, the genuine brother or sister in Christ, will respond to God's call for repentance. Their obedience is not stronger than the hand of God. Their disobedience is not stronger than God's ability to transform their hearts. And so when God has chosen to place you in a situation where he has decided to to use you as the instrument by which he's going to lead this person back to repentance, we can approach those situations with hope that a true brother or a true sister in Christ will return. This does not guarantee that your conversation or your rebuke will be successful, but it does grant us hope that God is at work in his church. God has the ability to save. He has the ability to call believers out of rebellion. He has the ability to deliver them back to his fold, even individuals like the Galatians who have strayed so far from the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you are a God who saves. We're thankful that you are a God who draws to repentance. I pray for those of us in this room who might be on the verge of of rebellion like the Galatians were. And I also pray for those in this room who know others who are on the verge of this type of rebellion. And I pray that you'd give each of us the type of grace we need, either to speak truth or to respond to truth. I pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.